we continue our series in the book of Ephesians. I want to turn to chapter 2, verse 11 today, page 1242 there in the Pew Bible. When have you been on the outside looking in? As I thought back in my own memories, I remembered those first few months of high school. Oh, I was in a grade school with 30 students in my eighth grade class. And then for high school, I went to the local high school And I forget, I think our class was over 300. And it was shock. And I didn't know anyone. I was afraid that I would not remember my locker combination. Remember those days? I didn't see hardly any of the students that I went to eighth grade with and graduated with, and I was in different classes than they were, and I would sit by myself and wonder, when will I ever fit in to high school? How about moving, and you move into an established neighborhood? Now, when you move into a new neighborhood, you're all new, you all make friends. I've done that once in my life. But every time else that I've moved, I've moved and there are people who have been there 10, 15, 20, 30 years and I'm the newbie on the block. And then they find out either I'm a seminary student or I'm a pastor. And one of the places I moved, a neighbor asks another neighbor, do you think he'd mind if he saw liquor boxes out with my garbage? (laughs) To say that they put... Isolation around me was to say it mildly. I was on the outside looking in, wondering what could I do to break into the community. For some of you, even for me, deciding to visit a new church, looking for a church home, and you come in, most of you have experienced this And you'd say, no one knows me. How will they treat me when I walk in those doors? And I have been in your shoes a few times in my life. But that wondering, do I fit in? Is there any way that I can break into the inner circle? How about starting a new job? You're excited, it's a pay raise, it's a bump up, it's a higher level, and you walk in and and you don't know anything about the corporate culture. And you're saying, well, I see where the restrooms are. Can I use them? Where's the break room? Or do we not take breaks here? What do you do for lunch? All those questions that go through your mind and you wonder, will anyone take you along and kind of show you the ropes? Or will you have to find out for yourself? Some of you have joined a work group mid-project and you're saying, I feel so out of it. So out of it. But you persevere. 
You hang in there. Things sometimes get better. Can I suggest the same dynamic also happens when you're dating someone? And you're looking for that future mate and you're saying, are they the one? Or do I got to find someone else? And you date and you date and you date. And all of a sudden, you're getting some consistency and you're, you've now been dating for months and things are getting more serious and you're taken home to meet their family. And you're under, you're under the microscope, amen? And they're wondering, is this person good enough for my child? Well, I'll tell you right now, because I went through this. I married up. I married up. Because they were wondering, with the background that I had, even before I understood ministry was going to be in my uh, wheelhouse, Barb's mother was a social worker. And so she was analyzing me, and then she found out that I came from an alcoholic home, and she said, oh, Barbie, do you understand what you are getting yourself in for? And so I, I felt the pushback a little bit. But I persevered, and God was gracious. And eventually I talked to her folks and I asked for permission and they said yes. And then it came the day and I, and I got married to her. Glory, amen, glory. That day you think back and you say, what's happening? This is, this is a blessing. But how are you gonna look at that marriage? Because you can look at your mate and say, what a blessing God has given me. But you also have to remember, that's a privilege. But you also have an extended family that you are marrying into. And that's a responsibility because some of them are not too lovable. Amen? Amen. Well, some of you are, are <laughs> courageous enough to say that. I think Van's in amen mode and didn't realize that his... His, his in-laws were sitting right behind him with a cane. You could bop him on the head. And so you love your mate, but you got to deal with Uncle George and Aunt Gertrude. And you meet them infrequently and you, and you struggle to say, how can I break into their life and, and be a blessing to them? And some of them Never warm up. Never embrace you. What do you do with them? Because you're on the outside looking in for part of the family. And it's like, you can't escape this one. Today we're going to look at a passage in Ephesians 2 that we are going to learn the blessings the joys, but also the responsibilities of being part of the family of God. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, please. What's the background? In the first part of the letter, Paul sharply contrasts 
what we were as unbelievers. And now, due to God's grace and power, we have been made alive together with Christ. We're going to see, though, now, in starting in verse 11, a new contrast, this racial divide between Jews and Gentiles, this deep division, which is fixed in both of their minds. These two are not brought together by the finished work of the cross. And then God creates something new. Now, as we read the passage, please understand. Let me check here. I think you're all Gentiles. Are any Jews here this morning? Any Jews? No. So as we look at this passage this morning, you need to see yourself apart from Christ. You, as the Jews would call you in the past, you are dogs. I didn't say that. That's what they said about you. Let's look at verses 11 and 12. Therefore, remember, and again, he uses the word remember twice in these first two verses. Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called, quote, the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at time, at that time, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What Gentiles were before Christ is separation. Fill in the blank in your outline there. Separation. And Paul says, don't forget this. In verse 11, he says, you are despised by the people of God. You are unworthy outsiders. And there was no love lost between Jews and those who were not Jews. And when you are called uncircumcised, you need to understand, that was an ethnic slur of that day. Similar to despised nationalities of today. You uncircumcised. The Jews considered us a little better than animals. That's why they called us dogs. The Gentiles resented the Jews for their smug religious superiority. And the two sides never saw eye to eye. The reality is, though, God set Israel apart, starting all the way back in Genesis 12, to be a channel of his revelation, his channel of goodness to the world, And as the Jews began to multiply and as they got the the revealed written word of God, they felt privileged. But Israel kept this difference nationally and ritually, but not morally. They, They were as bankrupt morally as we are. But they felt like they had arrived spiritually. They were, they they got to meet with God. 
the God of the universe. Once a year, the great high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and put the blood on the mercy seat to say, our sins are covered one more year. Gentiles had nothing like this. And as we hear the smugness of the Jewish nation, even here, it reminds us that we should extend grace to others. So we are not smug. See, God didn't choose Israel to exclude others. He chose Israel and the Jewish nation to reach and bless all the other nations. And they had forgotten that. In verse 12, there is one word to describe the Gentiles. And remember, the Gentiles are us. And the word is without. Without. Starting in verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. So you were a without Christ. You had no national hope of the Messiah. Secondly, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. B, you were without citizenship. You did not belong to the theocratic state of Israel. C, you were strangers to the covenants of promise. You were without covenants. Which means you had no direct participation with the covenants that God had set up to bless his people. Fourthly, it says, having no hope. We were without hope. There was no expectation that we had coming in our lives a personal Messiah to remove sin from us. We were without hope. And if that weren't all enough, he says, and without God in the world. Without God. Apart from God. Now, us Gentiles have gods, amen? We have a plethora of gods. And none of them are the true God. So you can list all the gods you want to, and the Jews looked at us and said, they're all fakes. Jews had the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when it says there, without God in the world, that, world, that word without God in the original Greek is where we get the English word atheist. Without God. What in just one verse, a bleak litany of our situation. It is dire. And then like he did earlier in verse Four, he does again in verse 13. But now. We've seen the darkness of how we were in trouble. We were as Gentiles on the outside looking in on what true religion and faith in God looks like. And we were outside. So what did God do for the Gentiles 
The word is reconciliation. Reconciliation. That reconciliation word means to remove enmity, to remove strife. And in verses 13 to 15, we see what God does. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace. So in verse 13 is another great contrast going from at one time, but now. And what happens is the enmity between Jews and Gentiles has been abolished. We as Gentiles were far off, but now we have been brought near. Only Christ's atonement can remove the sin barrier. But notice, the cross does not dissolve ethnic distinctions but displays reconciliation. Each believer equally qualified to share in the benefit of salvation and peace. And that peace is horizontal. It's between brothers and sisters in Christ. To fill in the blanks, horizontal peace resulting in one new race or class. Verse 15, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. In Christ, there's no longer Jew or Gentile. In Christ, we are his brothers and sisters in Christ. See, the cross is God's answer to racial discrimination, segregation, anti-Semitism, bigotry. In every form of strife between people, the cross does away with it. And when we see it come up inside of ourselves, we need to take ourselves back to the cross. We need to remember that we used to be on the outside looking in and now God has taken both those who were near, the Jews, they were near, they they had heard the revelation of God, but they still had to embrace him by faith. And us who were far away, and he said, you know what? I'm not going to have two classes of people in my kingdom. I'm going to have one, and they're called believers. Saints. And I don't care what your label was before you were saved, you are now a child of God. In verses 16 through 18, that reconciliation takes place between God and people. 
the enmity between sinners and God also has been abolished. Verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off. That was us. And peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Do you understand that this is a mystery being revealed to us? Because nowhere in the Old Testament was it ever spoken of Jews and Gentile believers being a part of one body. Never mentioned. And Christ comes. The cross takes place. And something new is happening. See, Christ gives believers access. Formerly, formerly in Judaism, you went through the priest. You went once a year. He went into the Holy of Holies and, and, and sprinkled the blood. And if you wanted to get a hold of God, you went to a priest and you, he brought his, your offering to God. Now, in Christ, we have access to the Father. This vertical peace results in access to the Father. Starting in verse 19, he's going to say to us, what do we now have in Christ? As Jews and Gentiles saved by the blood of Christ, the word is unification. Unification. Verse 19, so then, as a result of all this, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You're no longer on the outside looking in. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We understand that we have been united with God as we have embraced Christ as our Savior from sin. We have now have peace with God. We have been united with God. That is almost unthinkable. Amen? But can I say that's just as amazing? We are now connected one to another. This access one to another goes across racial divides. It now goes across economic divides. And he says three things about this new unification in, these, in this passage in verse 19. But you are fellow citizens with the saints. We are a part of one new nation. One new nation. Secondly, it says we are members of the household of God. We are one united Family, you are my brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And just like we married into a family and there's still Uncle George and Aunt Gertrude that I don't get along with, and that's a physical relationship, as part of the body of Christ, we are all connected. We are all joined one with another. And I can hear some of your thoughts. Not with that person. Don't, don't make me uh, sit next to them. You're all brothers and sisters in God's family. And then he starts in verse 20, he shifts the metaphor and he talks about a building. And he's going to talk about one holy temple. This new unity in Christ built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That's the foundation laid. Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together. Let me see, do I have a choice in that being joined together? No, that's God's work. Growing into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also being built together, together, into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The foundation was laid by the apostles and New Testament prophets. The cornerstone himself is Jesus Christ. The most significant stone in a building of this era is the cornerstone because it governs the lines and the angles of all the other stones. And the building blocks are us, believers in the church age. And the function of this temple, notice in verse 22, the function of this temple, it becomes the dwelling place of God. Now God dwells in us individually, yes, we know that theologically, but do you understand that as God is putting together his church called the temple, the body of Christ, he indwells also the structure. Not just us individually. See, God has provided reconciliation and unity across racial lines in the work of Christ for those in the church. We need to appreciate and to live out this reconciliation. And we need God's power, amen? amen. We need God's power to do this. As I sat and reflected on this this week, races were designed by God in Christ to function together, not apart. So what does this mean for us? Two things, and I put it in your note. A privilege and a responsibility. What a privilege we have in Christ. Amen? Amen. But often, often, that leads to spiritual pride. We think about all that we have been given. And we're all guilty. Now, for those of us who are saved, we think that our faith and our traditions elevate us above everyone else. We're just, we're, we're going to heaven and we're, we got the Holy Spirit in us and we're just, we're just hot stuff. Well, when you're, when you're in the midst of a lot of non-Christians, I know some of you think that, to say, I'm not, I'm not down to their level of disability. 
For the lost, they trust their achievements, their power, their position, their morality, and and they think that will grant them favor with God. They are suffering from spiritual pride as well. And if you find yourself on either side this morning, you need to repent. I am a sinner saved by grace. Amen? Amen. What did I bring to the table so that God would look on me favorably? Not a single iota. Does God love me more than he loves the sinner that sits in the bar? Now, sometimes we think he does. But God loves him or her just as much. Get rid of spiritual pride. Understand the privilege was given yours so that you can share the good news with everyone else. All Christians stand on level ground before the cross. All are sinners in need of salvation. When we talk about responsibility, the question becomes, in my thinking, what barriers have you set in your own heart based upon race, economics, politics. I've heard there's actually some Republicans in this audience. And Democrats. And independents. And some of you don't even vote. It's so easy to put barriers up in our thinking. And the walls that we tend to put up, Jesus Christ has torn down. That's what the passage says. He's torn down those walls. Why do we keep erecting them? The second responsibility is that Christ, the Prince of Peace, has called us to peace with one another. And as part of this new temple that God is forging, even here at this church, I had to stop and think. What kind of dwelling place ought this to be for God? A building filled with factions, divisions, self-seeking, quarreling, Or is this a temple filled with unity, joy, caring, self-sacrificing, genuine love? See, every day we make decisions with our actions and our attitudes that is going to build the building one way or the other. The enemy would love for us to put up inferior work. Amen? Amen. Let's use fleshly materials. It's easier to do, folks. Takes less effort. Or is the Spirit working in you to say, no, I want to do a work in you to build a temple to the living God that he will take joy in. How will you build? 
Would you take a moment and look into your own heart? And would you look to see what you find? But also more importantly, what does God see? Would you just close your eyes for just a minute or two and reflect and ask God to show you what kind of temple are you building for him?